Let me out. Let me out. This is not a dance. I'm screaming for help. I'm begging for help. Please come let me out. Let me out. Let me out. I'm dying of out in the garage. Tiny Rick. My volume controller gone. I don't have bloody volume control anymore. Oh, I give up. All right, okay, let's go. Just gonna have to deafen yourself. Right. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to episode <laughs> 48 of the world famous Tetsu Prodcraft. I'm Magic Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> you just ruined my intro. I'm Topcrat. <laughs> I'm Magicy Kittens. <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit of follow-up, and there's some uh, brief newsy stuff I want to talk about. Um, follow-up. Do you remember the extensive discussion about the shredding of live chicks? Mm. Right. Mm. Okay. It turns out that that is the new, improved, more humane way of disposing <laughs> with unwanted chicks. Yeah. And previously, pre- prior to the implementation of shredders, they used grinders. So I just thought I should add that that they uh, basically nice. had giant meat grinders. And uh, I'm not joking. Again, you can find videos of this stuff on the web if you're so inclined. If you want to spread the word about the uh, this sorry, sorry state of affairs. As goes chicken welfare and why you should stop eating chickens um, and eating their eggs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear, what a mess! This is this bit of a bit of a conflict for me because I'm kind of involved in I have been involved in chicken research for a long time, part of which is funded by the poultry industry. So and and, it, and it's all about like you know how important chickens are as a mainstay of uh, you know um, they've been so important in in controlling human travel and the source of protein and stuff and. And did I say how many chickens there are in the world at the moment? It's like 24, 24 billion chickens right now. Did you know that? 24 billion. 24 billion that chickens. That sounds like too many. We should be eating more of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, want, I want there to be some kind of like, uh, uh, what's, which, which is the Planet of the Apes movie where the, where the apes rise up against their human um, enslavers and overthrow them? Well, someone should do that with chickens. <laughs> Well, betting of them, we wouldn't stand a chance. How many chickens do you think you can win in a fight, beat in a fight? Anyway. Well, I'm guessing more than three. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest. Depends which kind of chickens they are. And on that subject, um, the gas used to kill them is CO2. Thank you, Irene Dels, for telling us that. So it's not like a, a, a slow... Uh, painless, lulling into sleep kind of death, but it's a horrible, choking, painful, coughing up blood kind of death. So that's nice as well. And another thing on chickens, uh, thank you to Irene for this as well, those Dong Tao chickens that we spoke about some episodes back, the ones with the giant fat feet, um, they are Vietnamese, they're not Chinese. I thought we said that. Oh, Oh, My recollection is I said they were Chinese and that's not correct. Um, So... Let's follow up. There's a couple of newsy things I want to run through real quick. Or should we talk, should we talk about um, TezuCon first? Any other follow-up? Uh, I think it all... There's a bunch of stuff I've written down, but I can't remember what it's about now. It's, all written, it's written in code. Right. Um, right. So, so let's forget that then. What? What do you mean forget that? What, forget the code or forget the chicken stuff? Forget the, follow- no, the forget, chicken. Yeah, forget the, fo- the other follow-up. Oh, you want to you want to keep talking about the chickens? No, we're done on the chickens. Okay, good. What is it with you and chickens? <laughs> right. Anyway, three point seven million listeners as of this week, so we're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, were we going to talk about news, or were we going to talk about TetsuCon? That's the last thing we said. Okay. Well, let's see. Yeah, let's TetsuCon is news, isn't it? Okay. So 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 we've just we part of the reason for our long long silence has been the. A huge amount of uh, preparation and stuff involved in TetsuCon, which happened in 14th November? 14th of November, yeah. Oh my god, that's a long time ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think that works as an excuse for not doing the prodcrats. Well, there's other stuff as well, but yeah. uh, what do you want to say about Tezukon? Um, it went well. It was, yeah, it was hugely successful. Bigger than last year? Better than last year? Maybe. Um, You've got the feedback forms. I did. Uh, most people seem pretty pleased with it. Good. And the main thing they want it more of is everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, thank you to everyone that came. Thank you to all of our speakers. We had a great time. Uh, so I, I don't want to say too much about it because I've obviously written about it already mm. on Tedgeworld Zoology. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So the main thing to say, I guess, is that it will be happening next year. Uh, again, next year, won't it? Um, mm-hmm. It might be a two-day thing, but we're not sure. Um, but yeah, keep an eye out for that. I think it'd be more for. And obviously, lots of our podcast listeners are not um, UK residents, so it would be um, more worthwhile coming over for a two-day thing. So we're going to try and sort that out as early as possible, um, so that if you are travelling a long way. Maybe you can join it up with something else. Incorporate it into your plans. Yes? Yes, that sounds good. Um, Yeah, we were one speaker down, but it didn't really matter in the schedule. And um, we should also say that the the plans to live stream it uh, just couldn't work out. There's a whole world of pain involved in setting up anything like that. So sorry to the people that, that wanted to... Because there are people that were prepared to pay to, to you know, listen to it as it was happening and stuff. We tried. Certainly John did anyway. And uh, just couldn't work out. We also have to say that uh, the finances are an issue. Now, we are not, we're not hemorrhaging money over these things. But we're not coming out of it particularly well. So, um, <laughs> uh, God, we're great at coming up with break-even schemes, Darren. Really good. Break-even. Well, it's not a break-even scheme when you consider the time and effort put into it, obviously. Absolutely. So, um, no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we so, don't know what to do about that. <laughs> um, well, one thing about- is that if it gets bigger, we, we can you get economies of scale, um, but we might have to put prices up a little bit. It's still pretty reasonable, and we won't put them up a lot, but yeah, um, just at the moment. It's not worth our time at all. <laughs> no, no. And, and just, just to make this clear, because I know people talk about not making money when they actually are making millions or thousands. We are talking about the fact that it costs us a couple of thousand to run this, a couple of thousand pounds. We're in England here. And um, the take home for us is of the order of 100 pounds, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which, given the time and effort and expense put into wrecking the venue, travel expenses, transporting stuff to and fro, you know, taxi fares, uh, just the time spent in organising everything is the, there's an, uh, you're talking about like weeks of work, not, not like a day of work where a hundred pounds might be might just about be okay. Um, so yeah, 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 but 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 whatever, it was good and it's now an integral part of the Tetsu universe and uh, it will be happening again and um, I, I'm I'm pleased people enjoyed it. So so okay, so that that's that Tetsucon 2015 done in the bag. It was good and. We're also not fixed in terms of uh, when in the year we're going to have these things. I mean, so far they've been in the summer and in uh, November. So, um, yeah, plans are somewhat different. <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. Okay, should we move on quickly on to news? There's a few sexy papers and things that have been announced lately that I just want okay, to whiz through. really quick, really quick. Okay, so it's a two-minute rule. Keep an eye on the clock, yeah? And... Uh, drinking game. Drinking game is always in effect. I've just run out of drink, though. I was only drinking coffee. No alcohol today. Okay. Uh, there's a paper by Gardner et al. on... Um, oh, dear, no. Is this the right one? Again, these notes are from weeks ago, and I've forgotten. Okay. There's this, there's this cool paper about... Uh, it was always thought that lemurs on Madagascar were kind of immune to predation, and they didn't really have any predators apart from the occasional fusa eating them. But there's uh, several cases where shifax and other lemurs have been uh, eaten by snakes. And this this paper, I think it's, I think Gardner et al. in uh, I don't know Journal of Primatology or one of those journals, um, they described a, she, a cockerel shifax which was attacked by a Madagascan ground boa, a known individual, an individual called Big George. Big George was a female, the biggest snake ever recorded on Madagascar. This snake is 2.7 metres long, weighed about 8 
kilos and big george um uh, a known individual always hung out in the same place they've been studied for years big george attacked cockle shifark and the other members of the troop attacked the snake and bit it and hit it and stuff and it died and the snake was killed by this primate group. And to people who are interested in, there's this whole like sub-genre of primatology, people interested in the impact that snakes have had on the evolutionary history of primates. This is a key study, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, have you heard all this news about Chris Filardi and the um, uh, moustached kingfisher that he collected in the Solomon Islands? No. Oh, well, there's been like... Uh, all I've been hearing about recently is Star Wars. Oh, Star Wars. Well, let's not get started on that. Right. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Oh, it's so close. It's ten days away. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to go and see it on the premiere day? <laughs> I'm not, but we should do a pod. We should talk about it on the pod- podcrats. We should leave it a bit yeah. a week or so. Anyway. Yeah. I'm actually going to see it just after Christmas, not before Christmas. But uh, oh, yeah. anyway. So, Mustachio so Kingfisher. Moustached kingfisher, uh, endemic. There's, there's several subspecies endemic to different of the. Again, don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, I think it's the Solomon Islands. I'm hoping it's not the Marshall Islands. I think I think it's the because there's there's a there's one of the subspecies is from the Gudalsanal. That's that's the Dontracusto archipelago, which uh, that's got to be close to the Solomon Islands or part of it. The Solomon Islands. There's they're like they're sort of like. All right, uh, tangent, tangent. <clears throat> Um, they're kind of a range like that. How do you describe that? They're sort of parallel to the equator, parallel to one of the tropics, the cancer, tropic cancer, whatever. Um, okay, he collected this moustache kingfisher, which means he caught it and killed it because there's no data at all on any of the things you need to know about bird anatomy. And, uh, and he happened to report that, oh, wow, this kingfisher isn't as rare as people thought, and I collected one, and I now I've got this data on its genetics and feather morphology and gut length and all that kind of stuff. And uh, this is one of those things where um, people went, like, ballistic. They went crazy. They were like, what are you doing single-handedly killing, you know, such a rare bird? It's uh, And now... There's kind of two ways of thinking about it. From the sort of hyper-ethicist position, there's the like, well, killing an animal just for the purposes of scientific research, you're not sure about that. You know, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. But on the other hand, there's the, the kind of cold, conservationist-minded sort of you know, pro-biology, pro-science point of view, which is like, well, you need this data. The data you get is going to help this bird, hopefully, in the long run. You have basic data on it. So I'm sorry, you know, individuals have to be sacrificed and it doesn't really matter as goes the health of the population it turned out this this animal is not as rare as people thought it was um and rather similar to what was the name of that cecil the lion yeah Mm -hmm. people in general couldn't give a crap about lions yeah lions are dying off people are shooting them all over the place being poisoned because they're competing with people and livestock you know lions are going extinct but one lion is killed (laughs) and gets in the news and people go ballistic yeah it had a name Cecil the lion, yeah. So I'm not saying the death of Cecil the lion is okay, but it's like people fixate on an individual and don't seem to be able to do it to do anything actionable about the bigger picture. There's all these, there's all these big picture things that we could all help in, and people won't because domestic cats. You know, people aren't doing anything about domestic cats and how many animals they kill. But yeah, all this emotion and effort poured into one individual. It's a bit of a tricky situation. Uh, and that's the case with this kingfisher. There's an article on one of the newsy bloggy sites. Uh, I can't remember which one. Again, this is from weeks back. This is from before Tetsukon. And this one article has got like 900, more than 900 comments attached to it. Like the most commented on article they ever published. Um, I can't remember the, I can't remember the news site that, that runs it, but uh, that's been in the news a lot. Chris Filardi and his uh, moustached kingfisher. Uh, specimen, which there's like a hashtag I stand with Chris or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is just so dumb. Oh, it's, it's just one of those dumb things that the internet goes barking mad over for no particular reason. I mean, I think it's there is a like a discussion to be had, as you said, about the ethics of killing animals purely for scientific research. But it's in terms of things you might get mad about, it's got to be fairly low on the list, right? If you're into animal welfare. Yeah, when there are so many bigger things that we can act upon, like, for example, the burning of Indonesia, which is related to the palm oil industry, stuff like that, where it's really hard to get people to do anything. Um, 
yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, plastic pollution or uh, stuff. Okay. Anyway, go. Let's. Okay, what's next? Okay, two more things. Uh, Non-bird theropods. You are aware. You went to that talk I gave. What was it for? The London Bird Group about mm. feathered dinosaurs, including birds. And there's this new paper by Van der Reest and colleagues on another North American ornithomimosaur, another ornithomimid covered in integument, covered in fuzz. And um, this specimen, I think it's, I, I can't remember if it's ornithomimus or struthiomimus, but it's, uh, it's got filamentous integument, so long fiber-like structures preserved all over the place, dense, dense, like, bunch of them on the tail, um, which is nice. And also it preserves what they call an anterior femoral web. So this is a fossil dinosaur where we've actually got a skin tissue web connecting the leading edge of the thigh with the side of the body. That's quite cool if you're interested in, in a dinosaur-like mm. appearance. They also say that in this animal, the legs are not covered in fuzz. So, so you would have a Greg Paul kind of naked-legged look in this animal. That's interesting. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, there's, also, there's the whole mess about Sigil Massosaurus and Spinosaurus. That's still going on. I don't want to talk about that. I'm a bit bored with that, to be honest. Dakota Raptor. You heard about Dakota Raptor? Yeah. Robert De Palmer and colleagues, they have published a... Uh, a Utahraptor-sized dromaeosaurid from the Hell Creek Formation, so the Maastrichtian in North America. So there have always been um, indications that there are dromaeosaurids like maybe Velociraptor and Dononychus-type animals in the Maastrichtian in North America because there's teeth that evidence their presence. But the idea that there's a giant one, a Utahraptor-sized animal, an animal of like five metres long, I wasn't expecting that. And um, I think that's really cool. It uh, makes the Hell Creek fauna more diverse more interesting there's always been this question as to why are Maastrichtian North American big theropods so depauperate there's basically only Tyrannosaurus rex in the late Maastrichtian okay there's Albertosaurus in the early Maastrichtian there's the whole nano tyrannus thing but most people who are actually scientists are of the opinion that, that nano tyrannus is a juvenile Tyrannosaurus um, so sorry chair can you hear that but <laughs> yeah, Dakota Raptor, Dakota Raptor, this giant dromaeosaurid living alongside Tyrannosaurus. That's yep. cool. It turns out that some bits of Dakota Raptor are actually from a turtle. I think the there's a, there's a new thing oh. just come out by yeah, Victoria Arbor and colleagues. They've just published this in PJ. The I think the, the furcular or something they said is a turtle entoplastra, but um. Yeah, okay, so there's a few bits that have been misidentified. doesn't mean that Dakota Raptor has suddenly stopped being a thing now. Um, yeah, you only need one and, properly identifiable bit, not lots. Yeah, and they've got, like, the ulna. There's a really nice ulna. With, I mean, it's it's not known from complete skeletons. Yeah. It's known from like, bits and pieces, of course. But the ulna's got quill knobs or quill nodes preserved on it. So this is another non-bird theropod with, uh, with quill nodes. Uh, there's, there's only a handful of those so far. And it is interesting that you still get the wing. Well, this suggests wings in such large, yeah. large animals. Yeah, what's the story there, huh? Weird. Um, and finally, um, Greek sea monster. So again, I don't have any of the details in front of me. I'm just going to tell you what I remember in my head. That's the best this, sort. The Leads best to lots care. of follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this guy is on holiday uh, on one of the Greek islands. And he's on a boat in a cove and he looks over into the water and sees a thing and takes a photograph of it and comes back home and says, look, I photographed a sea monster. And th th the photograph is this peculiar grey rubbery looking thing that looks kind of like a cross between a hippo and a manatee and a dolphin. So this impossible creature doesn't really, it's got like a long kind of spatulate snout and little small eyes. And, uh, and there are, you'll find several, have you seen this image? Yeah. You've seen there's so. a se several, you know, and there's articles online where people are saying, wow, this, this, doesn't, this is something that we don't know. It's some weird mammal of some kind. But it's like, no, it's a curved, like, f uh, an, what's called an overboard fender. It's basically a special, uh, well, a, a protective device that you put on the side of a boat or the side of a, a jetty to protect the hulls of boats from smashing into the side and uh yeah a curved overboard fender and if you don't believe me google 
overboard fender. And people have, and 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 so I, 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 I recognise this. Other, I'm not the only one. You know, several people said the same thing about the same time. I recognise f- these fenders from <laughs> my extensive time spent in hanging around marinas, and um, um, I did a little a montage. I, I did the the sea monster photograph and. Uh, one of these particular fender designs there's lots of them and quite a lot of people straight away took this on board ben radford wrote an article about it saying oh mystery solved you know it's, it's one of these fenders and then i had other people saying oh it's not exactly the same the little hole was in a different place and there's an extra rib here and it's yeah but they're made of like sort of a plasticky stuff with like rubber on the outside they distort in the heat and when they get crushed they often get crushed by boats and this was you can also clearly see this has been distorted by the water so there's like is it diffraction or refraction but the, you know it's like it yeah. it looks weird and and there's scum on the surface of the water which makes it look weird as well so and these differences so just, obviously mean unknown sea monster right <laughs> well, it's not exactly the same as this fender here in this photo so obviously it's a sea monster it's it's I, the old therefore aliens argument isn't it i literally had an argument on twitter with a guy who said that he said i would rather accept that it's a real unknown animal than some mystery fender that you can't prove <laughs> exists and then i had another argument on facebook with an individual and and he was saying yeah but you can't you, you know, you haven't shown what kind of fender it is. He's saying, I think it's a fender, but you haven't shown which one it is. And I'm like, I don't care. There's like a whole bunch of them and they're all really samey. Okay, that was more than two minutes. You're supposed to stop me there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. What do you want to do now? Cash for questions? Fender gates. <laughs> we should. Yeah. We should okay. move on to this. All right. Um, so let's start with the oldest one here which is this very long one from jc stuck and i'm sorry jc but i'm gonna have to paraphrase you here and yeah i understand the usual arguments against hybridization loss of biodiversity being a key reason but with a severely impacted population like the northern white rhinoceros why wouldn't we include hybridization amongst our conservation options Okay, okay, so, so basically... Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to say, okay, so the question is... What is the question? Why the wouldn't we what? include hybridization amongst conservation op- options when we're looking at things like subpopulations of rhinoceri? <laughs> or rhinoceroses, if you will. Rhinocerotes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I looked at these questions weeks ago before... We actually tried to record a podcast before Tezucon and we had tech problems and it didn't work out. So I looked into this and the short answer is, well, we, we as in those people interested in conservation biology, have, people have done this. They have extensively hybridized uh, very endangered animals in order to basically... Uh, okay, the, the northern white rhino, people know that there were four and one of them died this year, so now, they're now down to three. So what would you rather have, no rhinos at all or hybrid rhinos? And the general thinking is we'd rather have hybrid rhinos because at least that, okay, hypothetically in this particular instance, because you're still preserving you know, genetic characteristics, which maybe at some point in the future you're going to be able to retrieve and back-engineer a pure version or, or whatever. At least you're preserving something. Um, and the other thing is that a lot of these very... Uh, rare animals reduced to small populations are hyper inbred and there's loads of things wrong with them. Classic example is the Florida Panthers, which I forget the numbers now, they're down to like really tiny number of individuals and there's a disturbing amount of um, kind of, you know, horrible inbreeding dysfunctional things about them like kinks, tails and cross eyes and stuff like that. So in those cases, uh, management policy has been to introduce genes from other populations and do the best you can. So they did this with the Florida panther. They introduced uh, the Florida panther, of course, being a, a supposed subspecies of uh, the puma or cougar. They introduced pumas from, I think, a Texan population to the to the Florida region, and they created hybrids to yeah to increase numbers and uh, you know sort out some of these. Uh, inbreeding problems and this has been done with a whole bunch of other things so um and there was a really good article i found uh, on this in fact which which had lots of case studies 
and uh, and um, let's see if I can find it while I talk because I remember saving it. <sighs> No. What the hell? Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> Rape and the prevalence of hybrids in broadly sympatric species, a case study using albatrosses. Okay, that isn't the study I was thinking of, but that looks quite interesting. Um, animal conservation, zebra, sorry about zebra hybridization. Grievy zebra, grievy zebra even is, is, is extensively hybridizing with, with Chapman's zebra, a plain zebra, which is surprising given how anatomically odd they are. Um, God damn it. Sorry. I just didn't have time to. Yeah. Well, uh, but God. I mean, yeah, stop that. All right. <laughs> okay. You done? Yeah. You done Googling while people listen? I'm not Googling. I'm searching my own files. Right. Um, <clears throat> I guess the thing is, and I do want, obviously, conservation biologists must think about this stuff all the time but it just surprises me that we talk about something like hybridization what does that even mean because they can interbreed what are we hybridizing here two things that we could distinguish somehow and it often worries me that it's because populations have become isolated it's extinction that have caused populations to become isolated localized extinction and that actually you would get genetic transfer in these um these things if if there was wilderness in between you would get all this genetic transfer happening anyway because these things can interbreed and therefore trying to maintain purity in tiny isolated subpopulations seems insane to me uh, now there's a really interesting point there which is the fact that there is a kind of static view of what species slash subspecies are in the world of conservation biology yeah, which which is contrary to the more kind of dynamic view that we've developed in, you know, phylogenetic work in biology at, in la- at large in the, the larger community, because uh, well, w- recent years, you know, d- due to the Im- improving abilities to sample and you know understand genetic diversity and genetic makeup of organisms, we're we're finding out. I mean, everybody's now familiar with the human story, the fact that it's not one lone lineage that struck off, you know, diverged from the others and did its own thing. It's like our species incorporates genes from maybe maybe three or more other things that we would regard as hybrids. We know of other animals. You know, everyone's familiar with polar bears incorporating brown bear. DNA, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, this is we shouldn't. Uh, I think there is this idea that yeah, they want to like preserve the population as if it's as if it's a thing, as if it should stay the same. Whereas um, I did have this this whole thing ready to talk about as regards red wolves because they were really relevant to this. People put all this money into red wolf conservation, thinking that it was a static, stable unit. Um, and then it turned out, you know, uh, this is still somewhat controversial, but it turned out that um, uh, red wolves, I think they're endemic to, is it North Carolina? But um, they are almost certainly hybrids, naturally occurring hybrids between coyotes and wolves. And of course, nowadays, coyotes and wolves are hybridizing increasingly due to, due to changes in the populations of both of them. So um, trying to preserve a hybrid that... Uh, okay, it may actually... Uh, preserve genes of wolf populations that are extinct so it may actually be a unique hybrid that can't be recreated but um mm. uh yeah try, trying to keep it a static entity when it's not it's a, it's a it's kind of a fluid sort of range edge I think the one argument that could be made for this sort of thing is if there a populate a, a local population of animals does something that is unusual and other members of their gene pool don't. So, you know, white rhinoceroses, for example, can you introduce other white rhinoceri, rhinoceroses, <laughs> into that area and will they do the same thing? Because if they will, then what are we even talking about here? Are we talking about anything useful? Hmm. But if if those if a local population does do something odd, they've got some anatomical or behavioural trait that wouldn't be recreated or extended by hybridisation. Although I don't like that word because I don't think it means anything. Um, 
Then what? You don't like the word hybridization? No, I don't. Well, it is a thing. But it's just presuming I mean, it's, the things were separate to start with. Yes, it's like, but it's like the word species, isn't it? It's totally subjective. So we decide that there are populations A and B. Yeah. Those are subjective. And if we now say that they are But there are, crossing, at least with species, I mean, we've talked about this at length before, and obviously yeah. the, we know the answer to this, but at least with species from a conservation biology point of view is that they're reproductively isolated, or they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, Ish. Ish. Exactly. I know. But... Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas... I, I, yeah, I just... Using a word like hybrid just presumes that they're separate to start with. And, I, you know, if you don't buy that argument, then what does it even mean? Mm. So anyway, I was saying, if there is something unique ecologically about a small population, then maybe there's an argument against bringing in external... Yeah, uh, genes, individuals. Yeah, um, but if there's not, then pff. yeah, or or culturally, if there's something culturally unique about a population, um, then you might ruin that. If you, for example, Japanese That's what I snow behavior, behavior. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Um, well, no, just as an example, Japanese snow monkeys. You know, people they belong to a species, the Japanese macaque, and people think that all members of that species sit in hot springs to warp, keep warm when it snows. But no, it's only like a couple of like populations that have got that culture. So you could just you would destroy that if you brought in members of the species from places elsewhere that haven't got that specific culture. But uh, but in general, I would say that the main answer to uh, JC's um, question is that this is this is a thing that people in conservation biology have considered, have thought about, and they have decided on many occasions to uh, air quotes here allow air quotes or air quotes promote the occurrence of hybridization because they would rather that they were hybrids than there were none at all and they also think that in cases these inbred populations need to have well fresh input so if you just google for example conservation hybrids you will find the words conservation hybrids put them together you'll you'll find a whole bunch of um uh, interesting articles on this on on the, the sort of problems that it poses should we conserve hybrids and uh, you know how should we uh, should we yeah sort of allow hybrid hybridization when uh, when populations are in trouble yeah and 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 there are specific case studies where this has been done as i say the florida panther being a very well known one so i think, do you think this is, yeah yeah i think that covers it i, I just was going to say i think this is a really interesting um this is the main interesting scientific application of taxonomy in many ways isn't it like this is this yeah. is what makes taxonomy important and what we actually mean by species concepts and stuff. This is where the the rubber meets the road, as they say, right? <laughs> do they? Yeah, they do say that. I don't say that. Um, but yeah, so I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. It's really interesting that stuff, which all seems really esoteric um, to a lot of people, does actually make a big difference on the ground. Yes, yes. People people speak at great length about how taxonomy is. Uh, you know, a lawless no man's land, an area of infinite subjectivity. But we can actually try and impose, uh, you know, quantifiable science, phylogenetics in some cases, and genetic distances onto some parts of the the tree of life, and uh, and therefore make. Uh, there, the, the, there are there have been efforts to um, so to so called. To how do you how do you say that? How do you describe that? There have been claimed to manage extinction by using objective measures of genetic distance mm-hmm. and determine. So you've got like one group of birds where there's forty species. They're all really hard to distinguish, and they've all diversified within the last like you know let's say ten thousand years or whatever. And then you've got one lineage that's been on its own for you know millions of years maybe tens of millions of years well then uh there 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 are increasing efforts to say well we should concentrate on the one that's on its own instead of try and preserve those however many you know recently evolved very samey species which sounds like a no-brainer but in the world of conservation it it hasn't been a no-brainer people have you know had a far more kind of random sort of socio-cultural approach to what we should conserve whereas now they're saying you know we don't have infinite money we can't conserve everything um we should yeah. we should be pouring money into like those 
those those ones that preserve unusual or unique character combinations, whatever. Yeah. What do you want to yeah, what do you want to preserve? Like the one of the thousands of species of the the house mouse complex or <laughs> monotremes? Yeah, right. exactly, exactly, and 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 you would probably find that there's more money put into samey things than there is into, say, hypothetically monitoring conservation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Do you? Yeah, I I think we've kind of covered JC's uh, thing there. Yeah. Good question. All right. So, shall we move on then? So, this is a question from Carlos Miguel Badrial Silva. Oh, I probably mangled your name, Carlos. Sorry. Do you agree with Kevin Pady and Atel 2011 that flight invertebrates did not evolve from gliders and that gliding is probably not conductive to powered flight? What say you, Darren? Yes. What's your answer? No. <laughs> right, let's move on. <laughs> um, it's complicated. In general, when you say gliders, now I think of like specialized committed gliders, like your flying squirrels, your your flying phalangers, possums, those sorts of things. Yeah. And and uh, Draco lizards and Chrysopelia snakes. And I do not think that active flapping flights evolved from animals that did that sort of thing um, because those are specialized gliders. I don't think specialised gliding. I, indeed, I would agree. Don't I don't generally agree with Kevin Paley on lots of things, but um, yeah, I, I don't think specialised gliding. I think a sort of like bit of kind of clumsy bit of flapping and gliding, but not specialised gliding. Uh, probably probably was antecedent to flapping flight to true powered flight, but uh, but yeah, not specialised gliding. That's my sort of yeah. That's a summary of what I think. And you evidently completely disagree, and I want to hear why. Um, <laughs> you don't really completely disagree. I don't completely disagree. I think that, yeah, they've probably gone further down special, the specialised gliding route than that, and therefore it is less likely that they'll evolve flight than a less specialised, powered flight than a less specialised glider. But I, think, I, don't think, I don't agree with the notion that gliding isn't a step on the way to powered flight um, because I can see many reasons how many plausible ways you can evol- evolve a flight stroke while gliding um, there is a thing called flap gliding yeah this is I think this is one of the problems the fact that what exactly does gliding mean I've just touched on it because when I say gliding I'm thinking of committed specialized gliders that do nothing but glide they don't flap at all whereas when we talk and in fact if you look at the history of ideas on the origins of bird flight and also pterosaur and bat flight when people talk about gliding they often imagine a specialized flying squirrel style you know, specialised non-flapping glider. Whereas today, when we talk about the idea that kind of a little bit of gliding might have been involved in flight ancestry in birds, bats, pterosaurs, we are talking about something more akin to flap gliding or fluttering. The fact that you can jump out of a tree, do a little bit of like, like a little bit bit of a glide and then a little bit. So maybe the problem is there should be different names for these different See, but I think part of the problem is that we don't understand a lot of what this means for the morphologies that we see in the fossil record for dinosaurs, and we know virtually nothing about pterosaurs. And therefore, I think trying to guess at this based on principles, I just don't believe it can work. I don't, I don't think that we can enumerate the possibilities of what early dinosaurs and pterosaurs were doing and therefore, and then say something like gliding doesn't lead to flapping flight. I just don't think we can say that sort of thing about evolution. Um, I th- yeah. In this case, I mean, some obviously there are some biomechanical things that are very convincing. Um, in some cases, this doesn't lead convincingly to that. But... I've I've not heard, I've not been very convinced by the arguments that this is a really convincing one. Is the Padian and colleagues' argument 
that when they say that flight can't evolve from gliding, isn't that because they're still? I mean, is, is Padian still supporting the concept of like a cursorial origin of flight? That things are running in the ground and jumping into the air and flapping immediately. I don't know, and I don't know whether because I don't think I've read this one or I haven't read it for years. I don't remember the arguments in it. Mm. Um, I think the yeah the the ground up purists. I think all that stuff was just a big red herring. I think we've talked about this before. Um, And uh, and it's fairly clearly um, a red herring given the sorts of animals we find in the fossil record, right? You know, your microraptors and that sort of thing. They're not obligate. Um, What's the word? Curses, are they? No way. No. No No. way are they obligate curses. No. um, Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think we can dismiss that out of hand. I think the, if that is the argument, we don't know. The one of the arguments is that a flapping stroke during gliding actually makes your gliding less effective. Um, which I think is aerodynamically true, but if you don't flap properly, you know, a big proper powered flap. But then there might be many other reasons you're flapping. You, maybe it's for maneuverability. Maybe it's to slow down. Maybe it's to drop in a certain way. You know, I don't know. Uh, so uh, there's so many things animals could want to do. I just, yeah, that's why I don't really believe that one either. Okay. Any yeah. other thoughts? Well, no, no, I, I'm I'm happy with all that. I mean, I, I've I, I would say that the the, the notion of of um, uh, cursoriality leading directly to to ground up flight. I've never been happy with that, and nor have most of the people that I've, you know, worked with and spoken to. But it's always seemed to me to be quite a, like a prominent idea in the dinosaur community. The fact we have had people argue quite powerfully, and in particular, uh, sorry, powerfully is the wrong the wrong term. We have had people make a big noise about this ground up cursor <laughs> thing, uh, you know. You look at the work of not only Kevin Padian but um, Lewis Chiappi as well. He did this this thing about uh, Archaeopteryx powering itself as a cursor by you know sort of flapping. And um, uh, there there are papers from the nineties by Padian and Chiappi where they promote this as quite like a you know a mainstream idea in dinosaur science that that that, that there's no climbing at all, no climbing. These like these bird like theropods are not built for any kind of you know, climbing anything at all. And uh, I don't know, I, I sort of still get the impression that's quite a popular idea in the dinosaur research community. Whereas yeah, I can't, I don't really see that when I look at those animals. They're not, they're none of them, none of the um, bird-like dinosaurs and early birds we've got are specialised scancers. Mm. Or, you know, they're not specialised tree clingers or climbers or treetop animals. I don't think any of them are specialised arboreal animals, and I think most people would agree with that. But they still look generalist enough, as you've already said, animals like Microraptor. Yeah, they're running on the ground, but yeah, they're probably, you know, clambering around and hopping from branch to branch in branch to branch in like low trees and scrubby things and doing a little bit of everything. And, uh, and I think that is the context in which you have to imagine flight evolving that it's animals that yeah, they are running around on the ground they're foraging on the ground but they're they're leaping from heights and they're doing something that encourages them to use their uh limb and tail surfaces aerodynamically and uh and, and we should say as well i think you know uh john and i i well okay i won't speak for you but certainly of the opinion that i'm of the opinion that the things that became flight services were already there for another reason. They didn't like evolve these like you know large wing like surfaces as specifically as an adaptation for aerodynamic behaviour. But uh, but once they did start doing that, it became advantageous to like evolve longer feathers and you know better mobility at the shoulder and all this kind of stuff. So um, um so yeah, I, I don't see that. I agree with. I certainly don't agree with with Padian and whoever the et al are in this case. But um. But yes, I think. Uh, well, some... well, we're we're putting. We should be careful because neither of us can remember the paper, mm. what the arguments are in there. So we might actually agree, depending on <laughs> just whether the, it's the strong argument that um, no, sorry, strong as in 
strongly put rather than strong as in it is actually good that um, flight cannot evolve powered flight cannot evolve from gliding animals or whether it's a it's a gentler version where well specialized gliding is makes it more difficult to evolve powered flight and powered flight is more likely to come from a different sort of lifestyle that isn't isn't like a flying squirrel or something which i think maybe we could both agree on um yeah and uh, so i do think it's int- because we have um of course we do have lots of dinosaurs we've probably got enough as many as you could possibly hope for in a way and we're still not we're still arguing about it it'd be really interesting to see pterosaurs what what um semi-flighted pterosaurs looked like i think that would go a long way to answering some of these questions yeah i'm hoping that the um we we obviously been talking about uh mostly about dinosaurs uh Kevin Payton has, of course, published some stuff on the origins of bat flight, and I'm seeing that some of this that particular research was maybe not necessarily published, but announced in 2011. So, uh, without, yeah, it could be more relevant to bats. I don't know. Sorry, um, Carlos, but um, yeah, you might you might have to let us let us know. If, well, if you want to let us know, if you can be bothered, but uh, yeah, let us know whether you were talking about bat research or dinosaur research because uh yeah because i don't know because the context of bat flight is very different from that of uh that of dinosaurs maybe we'll come back to that i yeah. but i think i think we're yeah we're done there for now right i mean that's uh yeah yeah okay so yeah well, i'm sure we'll revisit this because it's one of those topics that comes up over and over yeah and perhaps rightly so it's an interesting one um indeed Okay, so let's let's go on to an anonymous question. My impression is that many large pterosaurs are known only from very fragmentary skeletons. Do reconstructions assume that proportions of very large pterosaurs are the same as smaller ones? If so, how sure are we that that is true? Do you want to? Um, do reconstructions assume that the proportions of large pterosaurs were the same as smaller ones? Mm. You can answer this better than I can. So if I just say very quickly, um, I would say that what we know of the very large pterosaurs is, yes, it's true that that some of them are known only from scrappy bits and pieces, but I would say that we've got enough of them to give us a ballpark uh, guide to overall anatomy. And what we do know of those, you know, anonymous, I'm sure here is thinking of anony mouse. Anony mouse. No, I put that Oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> that was more, more Tetsu appropriate. Um, Anony Mouse is, uh, yeah, yeah. Like you, you're probably thinking of the giant Asdarkids, but it's not as if we found an Asdarkid vertebra and a humerus and then imagined that it's a giant pterodactylus. We, we haven't. We've actually got enough bits of those big ones to know that, that their proportions are really very odd. They are very different from those of other pterosaurs. So, um, so yeah. My, quick summary here. My th- no, we, we actually do have good reason for thinking that they are. They do have their own peculiar proportions. It's not totally based on smaller ones, but it is informed by that. Hmm. And, uh, and I would say it also depends on what you mean by very large pterosaurs, because we've got lots of stuff from very large pteranodons, and lots of stuff from very large. Um, <clears throat> what's, what's the what's the actual clade there? I want to say Ornithochirids. Ornithochirids. Yes, we've got very large ones of those with relative with quite a few bones, um, and so their proportions are in some ways no more guesswork than a than a smaller pterosaur. Um, so those ones, I would say, you can be fairly confident. Mm. We know the scaling, um, and yeah, Ashdarkids are more interesting because. The very large ones, Quetzalcoatlus, Hatsodopteryx, that sort of thing, are much more fragmentary. Um, but don't forget, we do have good skeletons of the mid-sized ones. Quetzalcoatlus spa, for example. Spa, take that, Kesey. <laughs> take that, Kesey. <laughs> um, drink, 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 yeah. drink. And what we have indicates the pro- proportions are very similar, but yeah, there are big chunks missing from the big guys, right? And so it wouldn't entirely surprise me if something changes you know they've got shorter necks or something like this but oh spoiler um, 
<laughs> Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it, as far as we can make out, they don't. And as I say, we do actually have lots of very large pterosaurs where we've got re- reasonable material and the, and the proportions are relatively well known. And they're not that different to mid-sized pterosaurs, right? So if you get a five-meter mm-hmm. wing, five-meter wingspan pterosaur, you're fairly certain that a nine-meter one is going to be pretty similar. But you know, the the proportions don't change that much. Ah, so yeah. yes. There's not yeah, some great that, big gap where suddenly you've got giant pterosaurs and we don't have anything leading up to that. Yeah, and that, that is confirmed by the fact that when you do find isolated bits of really big ones, um, they pretty much are a nice match for uh, ornithochirids. You know, there's there's like snout tips that indicate individuals. So we've got... So I'm glad you mentioned ornithochirids because I didn't think of them at all, but we've got ornithochirids known from really good skeletons, like near-complete skeletons, like Colobarynchus piscato, for example, wingspan of, what is that, four to five metres or such. Yeah. And then you've got fragments of essentially the same animal, Colobarynchus, Ananguera, whatever you want to call it, those kind of animals, that are individuals maybe twice as large, you know, it, wingspans of maybe seven, eight, nine metres. And then you've got, like, a wrist bone or a partial humerus that's also from an equivalently gigantic animal, and it's you know, very similar, sort of isometrically really similar to the, uh, just, just a, a scaled up example of um, the the bits you know from the four or five meter wingspan animal. Mm. So the different isolated bits of the skeleton match up. They're not, they're not completely different. And that's what you would... see in Pteranodon as well. Right, yeah. Which also gets that... to, you know, nine meters or something. So it's, it's... Yeah. And there's good skeletons of individuals of, Sternbergi that are like going on for seven meter wingspans, right? Yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah. So I think the answer is actually fairly confident. I, mean, I think there is a question mark about really large um, Ashdarkids in some respects, but not in, you know, the wing bones seem to scale up almost exactly how you'd expect, um, and other bits are similar. There might be a little bit of jiggery pokery going on, but not very much. I don't think we're going to be. I don't think we're going to be shocked to find out they're drastically different. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. I think I think that's good. All okay. right. One last cash question. So this one's from Devin Myers. If you had to choose a single t- extinct taxon to discover a particularly well-preserved specimen of, complete the skin imprints and anything else you'd like. What would you choose? I'd like to hear both your answers if you have anything in mind. Okay, so you go first because I haven't thought of okay. anything yet. Oh, I've got a whole bunch of things. Well, you have to choose uh, one. Single uh, taxon. Single taxon. Damn it. There's a whole load of things. And, uh, well, of course there are. All of them. But, but, yeah, that's why you have right. to choose a well, single one. Okay, if it's got to be one, it's, for me, got to be something like a Gorgonopsian or a Dicynodont because um, now, you know, <laughs> dinosaurs, yeah, like, like high on the list for me is, is things like Ornithischian faces. I think I've mentioned this before. Really want to know what's going on with Ornithischian beaks and lips and cheeks and whatever, if, if those structures are present. But then... It's like there's so many other animals where there's so little research done and so little knowledge, as goes life appearance, that uh, you think of the non-mammalian synapsids. What was the what was the word I should be using for them? Stem mammals. Yeah. Stem mammals. Yeah. Think of stem mammals. It's like you start talking about those. There's these debates going on forever as to whether you know when hair and fur and whiskers evolve. That's that's been around for decades. And then everybody says, oh, there's this patch of skin from Estaminosuchus, which nobody's ever even seen. You can't find it in the literature, even if it exists. Apparently it does, but, but apparently it's uninformative anyway. It's just like a smooth patch of skin. As, as is so often the case with these patches of skin, it's like an animal the size of a hippo, you find a patch of skin, doesn't tell you about the whole animal. <laughs> the same as this argument, oh, t- look, we know Tyrannosaurus had scales because we've got, we've got this patch of scales. Yeah. It's big, the size of the palm of your hand. It's like, right, right. So the whole of the Tyrannosaurus was like that, yeah? Um, yeah, so, so uh, yeah, um, there's all these possibilities as goes what those animals look like, whether they had structures that are present in 
you know, crown mammals, um, I think that would be really useful to know. Uh, does it turn out they actually look really boring and like all the conventional old reconstructions that just shrink wrap them and put them in grey? Or were they actually crazy flamboyant and covered in manes and tassels and whiskers and stuff? And uh, Yeah. Yeah. So That's a good choice. Um, yeah. Well, I can't take that one. I think I'd go for a... Um, the basal dinosaur morph of some sort, Lagosuchus or something like this. Marasuchus. Marasuchus, yeah. is that what it's called now? Well, Lag- Lagosuchus is a nomen dubium because apparently the, the the thing that we always called Lagosuchus is actually not the same as the type material, which is non-diagnostic. Oh, so yeah, great. We really, care about, all, we really care yeah. about all that stuff. Yeah, so one of those guys. <laughs> um, to... Get on top of this um, origin of uh, fibers stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that would be one of the most helpful nodes to get. And also just be really interesting because I think a lot of these uh, sort of running crocodile type things, we don't have a lot of good stuff from them, do we? Um, no, not, I mean, there's a, there's a few groups where you've got, you know, dorsal scoots and, yeah. uh, yeah, you've got the things that have got bony cores to them, but you don't have that much in the way of skin. I, yeah, so I think it would be interesting. Are they just sort of ordinary crocodile type skin or have they got something else going on? What's, what's, what's going on there? Mm. Since oh, you already also- took basal, uh, sorry, um, stem mammals, I think that's the node I'm most interested in. There's also mm. what? There's also what? You cut out then. You said there's also... Did I? Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry, talking about croc-line archosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Not even on the alcohol today. I mean, already it's gone downhill. Just drink some more. There's, there's trackways of Rausukians, which demonstrate they had scaly skin on the palms palms well great we know that we know a lot of detail about the those bits of them but um uh sorry i was gonna say marine reptiles Mm. that is okay they're probably not furry (laughs) or feathery but there is a complete lack of information on the integument of plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and others And and again annoyingly as with stem mammals non-mammalian synapsids, there's rumours of things people have found, but uh, nothing good, nothing preserved. And even the rumours don't pertain to, like, you know, sheets of tissue across the whole animal. There's a, there's a plesiosaur from New Zealand called Kaiwikia, or supposedly pronounced properly Kaifikia, but not even its describers use that name, uh, Kaiwikia. And Arthur Cruikshank, one of the describers, told me that um, a patch of skin on it basically looks like a smooth surface studied studied with um uh, like little round uh i don't know scales or pseudo scales similar in size to smarties or m&ms huh. uh, peppered across the skin and it's like wow that's really not what i would have expected at all no but is it been, has it been published? Is it? Can you see it anywhere? No. no. Maybe if you go to New Zealand and go and dig through the collection where it is, you might find it if it exists. But uh, yeah, um, I'm going to change my answer. Huh. I'm going to go with a big sauropod, giraffe titan, or something like that. Okay. Doesn't answer many questions. It'd just be really well, apart from that, we don't have a lot of good stuff from sauropods, right? Some small patches of skin impressions, maybe some of these like um, osteoderm type things. But yeah, just to have it like a proper mummified, in air quotes, huge sauropod, that would be the most spectacular fossil in the world. And I think that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) That would just be so... Because I was thinking... If I read about, oh, integument found from Marasuchus or something, I, if I read about that on the internet, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. I look at it for a little while. Oh, so that's that then. But then if there was, a, there was an actual, like, they've found a whole complete mummified brachiosaur, I would be, oh, my God, I want to see that. And so would everyone else as well. Yeah. Because how many people in the world care about Marasuchus? Whereas yeah. Giraffe Titan, hey, you could, you could open a whole museum and make loads of money. <laughs> 
<laughs> you couldn't with Marasuka. <laughs> so that's my answer. Because <laughs> a really, money. really big one. Yeah. And the, these questions we have about like sauropod faces yeah. and how prevalent those, uh, how widespread the dermal spines were. Does everything have them? Mm. Or is it just that one specimen of C.F. Diplodocus? And also, what does or- just their skin look like from a distance? You know, what do they actually look like? I want to know what sauropods look like. Oh, I, I know what it looks like. John Gersher. John Gersher paints. It's like brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. It definitely did not look like that. Jurassic World. That's the Jurassic World view on dinosaurs, isn't it? Brains. Everything brains, looks like brains. brains. Yeah. Yes. No offense to John Gersher. Very talented artist. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's it. that's it for cash questions. Thanks, Devin. That was a good question. Um, right. Uh, let's wrap it up. Still, well, we got a bunch more questions. We'll do them next time. So thank yeah, you. Sorry, to yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, thanks for our cash questions. We do have more questions, which we're going to do, and we do have one big one. And the person that sent that in will know. Um, but we didn't have time this episode, so we're going to do you it next. Do it next episode. Which should be yeah. soon, because we're going to try and get more done this week. Okay, wrap it up. Right, yeah, that's it. Um, okay, so, uh, um, yeah, if you're interested in our stuff, then, you know, buy our books at irregularbooks.com. Co, co, co. co. All yesterday's, which is about science, speculation, paleontology, cryptozoological on book one, cryptozoological on book two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My my other cryptozoology book is is in the final stages of uh, being done now. It's going to be released as an ebook first, and if it does well, then they'll release it as a proper bookie book book. And I'm still busy with the. Uh, I think I think it's like basically nothing but a year on fish for the textbook so far. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I'm just wrapping up the Natural History Museum dinosaur book as well. And did I mention a book that I just had come out called Evolution, The Whole Story? I must have done, hadn't I? I don't yeah. know if you mentioned on the podcast, but... Uh... Oh, okay. I, I did a book with a bunch of other people. I can't even... Uh, where's my copy? <laughs> no, I can't see where my copy is, but it's it's got a chimpanzee on the cover for some reason. It's called, it's called Evolution, The Whole Story, which okay. is also the name of an album by Kate Bush, except without the word evolution in it. And, um, <laughs> yeah... No, can't see what it. What a coincidence. Yeah. But it's, it's okay. Although I had no control whatsoever, no input on the art. So a lot of the art is truly dire. Like they, they use terrible, terrible stuff from uh, um, Science Photo Library and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I tweet at Headquarters Personnel Reporting Command Center. Headquarters Personnel Reporting Command Center. At TetZoo. And I blog at Tetrapodology, currently hosted Scientific American. We spoke off-air about the problems with tetrapodology at the moment. Scientific American have just uh, kind of revamped their site, and it is a disaster. Really, really not happy. And um, those of you who read the site will know what I'm talking about. It's just terrible. So I'm seriously thinking about leaving. Um, But uh, I'm in negotiation, in discussions at the moment. So um, uh, Redbubble and Patreon and stuff. John and I are both on Patreon, and in order to survive, to eke out a living, uh, we require support. I am at patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. Thank you very much to my patrons. I love you. You're wonderful. Um, to the rest of you, well. <laughs> well, wellity, 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 well. <laughs> and Redbubble Shop. There is a, a Redbubble Shop where I sell merchandise, including... Did you know you can buy... Duvets featuring some of my designs. <laughs> oh, wow. And somebody recently bought, I've got a Corvid design. Now, I just do these designs with T-shirts in mind, but somebody recent bought, recently bought a pencil skirt with my crows on it. So um, I hope you enjoy that and, and it works because the design, I didn't have pencil skirts in mind when I, when I made it. But, so I think, I think the, the writing is screwed up. Uh, on the on the skirt design but um you're really selling it darren you're really selling it <laughs> yeah so everyone should buy skirts wonder if they do kilts be- <laughs> <laughs> just cut the slit down the side of the skirt 
<laughs> well, no, you know, a, a quilt is like like three meters long. I do. And I do. yeah, you know, it's yeah. okay. That'll do for me. All right, I'm talking rubbish here. Yeah, yeah. We thought we were meant to be shortening this whole thing, mm. right? So yeah, I'm on Twitter um, at the John Conway, and my website is johnconway.co. I think that's about it. Oh, you can find links to my Patreon there. Yes. Oh, some of our cash questions this week were from Patreon, so that's a perk that both of us have if you support us at a certain level. So keep that in mind if you're a podcast listener. Free cash for questions. Okay. Okay, I want to do a little song. Oh, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) You put this at the start of the episode, though, not at the end. Okay. Right, I'm not going to look at you because I'll be embarrassed. 